Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Doug, in case you don't know me, and I'm the senior minister here at Plum Creek. And I also want to welcome all of you who are watching today, whether you're here in Kentucky or maybe in another part of the U.S. or, or maybe somewhere on the other side of the world. Uh, we've seen that people are joining us from all over the place, and we love that. So wherever you are, we're glad you're with us. And I sincerely hope that this has been a good week for you. Uh, you know, we're living through a strange time right now, no doubt about it. But we've also seen that uh, there are some unexpected blessings uh, during this strange time. Uh, some families are, are rediscovering what it's like when your schedule is not completely packed with uh, work and all kinds of other activities. For example, in our neighborhood, uh, I've seen families out walking together like I've never seen before. We've also had more time to talk to our neighbors from at least six feet away, of course. So I hope you're seeing some of those unexpected blessings. At the same time, though, I know that for a lot of people, this has been one more tough week. You know, in normal times, when I see the news, the headlines, they don't really hit this close to home. But right now, the news is personal. When I see the headline that schools will be closed until at least May, I think about all the teachers and the parents and the kids I know who will be affected by that. And when I hear about businesses that are struggling to stay alive or furloughing workers, that's personal. I have friends who can't go to work right now. And when I see the stories about healthcare workers that are out there putting themselves at risk, I know some of those people too. And I've also been watching the numbers of the infections and deaths from COVID-19, and uh, that's also become personal. I now know someone who has lost a relative to this virus. The bottom line is everyone's affected. Everybody's got a story to tell. And very briefly, I want to share one story with you. Today at Plum Creek, we were supposed to have a visit from one of our missionary partners some of you remember Steve and Ruthie and their kids. They've been serving in North Africa. And I can't tell you their last names and I can't tell you the exact location because it could be very dangerous for them if we put that information online. But a few months ago or a few weeks ago, Steve and Ruthie came back to the U.S. to, to spend a few months. They had a plan to visit supporting churches and hopefully make some new connections and, of course, all their plans were put on hold. But I wanted Steve and Ruthie to have a chance to share a message with our Plum Creek family. So Steve sent me an email, and I want to read some of that for you. He says, Like you at Plum Creek Christian Church, the coronavirus has impacted us greatly. We're laying low in Louisville, Kentucky, and like you, we're waiting to see what happens. We have tickets to return in early August, and we don't know yet if we'll need to delay our return. Please pray that we find strength for each day and for each decision. Ask that this works for God's glory and that his kingdom grows in spite of these trials. The whole point of us being in North Africa is to see God work in a powerful way so that the gospel spreads through this land. We are seeking a movement of thousands of people to turn to Christ and follow him. We have learned that anytime there is a revival, 
or a great move of God, it is always preceded by a massive turning to him in prayer. As individuals and as a team, we realized that we needed to grow in prayer. So we began to take an honest look at how much we were praying and then slowly began to add to it. Eventually, this led us to do monthly, all-night prayer events for our people group, the people of the land we call Liberty. It has been challenging, but also a tremendous blessing to seek the Lord with others on behalf of his purposes and his glory among the nations. Amazingly, we've had people from 14 other countries join us in these prayer times. And as his people pray, God responds. Even in these days of being homebound, we continue to meet in prayer online and lift up each other, the ever-changing coronavirus situation, and the growth of his church in North Africa. So I wanted to share some of what Steve wrote, and we definitely want to be praying for these guys, but there's also a challenge here for us. I believe most of us could be more intentional about prayer, myself included, because there are so many needs around us right now, physical needs and emotional needs, and especially spiritual needs. More than anything else, People need Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at a story that changes everything. It's the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. We've spent the last several months on a journey through the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we finally arrived at the cross. And you know, some people think of the crucifixion as some distant story from the distant past. It doesn't seem very personal. It's like one of those headlines that doesn't hit very close to home. But the reality is, there is nothing impersonal about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's not just an ancient headline. It's not some 2,000-year-old piece of history. This event has the ability to change your life, both here in the present and forever into eternity. When Jesus died on the cross, it was personal. For me and for you. And for everyone who's ever lived, the crucifixion is the ultimate expression of God's love. It's proof that he loves you enough to die for you. There are huge implications for us when we look at the cross. And as our world goes through this difficult time, the best thing we can do is focus on Jesus. Now, some of us need a reminder of what Jesus did uh, at the crucifixion then some of us need to discover this truth for the first time. Either way, though, we're going to take a close look at this story today. And I want to break this up into two parts. In part one, we'll look at what they did to him. And then in part two, we'll look at what he did for us. Now, first of all, let's see where we are in the story. Last week, Dylan did a great job of explaining what happened at the Last Supper which was the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before he died. After the Last Supper was the beginning of a terrible stretch for Jesus. Every hour brought some new kind of agony. First, right after the meal was over, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where Jesus prayed, and he felt this immense weight and stress because he knew what was about to happen. And then... He was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and he was arrested by a group of soldiers. Jesus was put on trial, not in front of his peers, but in front of an angry mob. 
This mob had been stirred up by the Jewish religious leaders. And these religious leaders had been plotting to kill Jesus for quite some time. They hated him because he was a threat to their positions of power and prestige. So this mob condemns Jesus. They say he's worthy of death, and they begin to mock him, to spit on him, to blindfold him and beat him. He's shuffled from one leader to another, from Annas to Caiaphas to Pontius Pilate to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate. Some of you are aware that Pontius Pilate was not a Jew. He was the Roman governor. And Pilate did not believe that Jesus had done anything to deserve death, but he was also scared. He was scared about losing control of the people. If that happened, he could lose his career. So Pilate tries to appease the crowd. In John chapter 19, we read, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. At that point, Jesus is beaten without mercy. And this time, the abuse is not coming from amateur Jewish bullies. He's being tortured by the Romans. The Romans were experts in the art of flogging. The common practice was that the victim would be stripped naked and then tied or chained to an upright pole. A Roman legionnaire would take a a whip known as a flagellum, and he would beat the victim on the shoulders and the back and the legs. This whip was made up of multiple thongs braided together with bits of metal and sheep bones. It was all designed to rip and tear at the flesh. And this beating would stop only when the commanding officer decided that the prisoner was close to death. Many people actually died from the flogging, but Jesus didn't. So the torture continues. These Roman soldiers had become very hardened and calloused to human suffering, and they saw their job as an opportunity for cruel entertainment. Let's read Matthew's account about this. Matthew says that a crowd of soldiers gathered around Jesus and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. A Roman flogging caused excruciating physical pain, but it was also designed to humiliate and dehumanize the victim. At the end of this mocking and flogging and scourging, Jesus is brought back to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate presents Jesus to the Jewish mob again, hoping that they'll be satisfied. They're not satisfied. They shout, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, still trying to save his own political career, he gives up, he gives in, he caves. John 19, 16 says, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, when someone in the first century heard these words, they knew exactly what John was talking about. They were familiar with the horrors of crucifixion. They had seen it. They witnessed it. But now in our world, uh, this is foreign to us, and we may need a little context. Now, I don't want to get overly graphic because I don't want the gruesome details to overshadow the meaning of this sacrifice. 
But I do want to explain what a crucifixion was really like. And that's why I've climbed up on this ladder and I'm, I'm here next to a life-size cross. This particular cross was used in the Plum Creek Easter dramas years ago. And I want to use it today to help us understand what Jesus went through. And the first thing I want to point out is this horizontal beam here. The Romans called this horizontal beam the patibulum. Now, patibulum is a Latin word because the Romans spoke Latin. And if you're watching with your family or your friends or even if you're alone, uh, go ahead and uh, say that word with me. Ready? One, two, three. Patibulum. Now, if you actually said that, I want to say congratulations uh, because you know at least one word in Latin. And we all know only smart people know Latin, so great job. But here's what I want us to understand about the patibulum. After Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, this horizontal beam here was thrust upon Jesus' shoulders. It, it was heavy, weighed approximately 75 pounds. It was rough, full of splinters. And so as the weight bared down on Jesus' shoulders, it scraped against those open wounds from the flogging. The pain would have been terrible. And then Jesus is led on a long march. A Roman centurion leads him outside of the city to the place where he will be executed. This march was a distance of about three-eighths of a mile, about a lap and a half around a running track. And we know from Scripture that he wasn't able to carry the beam the entire way. He was too weak as a result of the flogging. And so he did get some help at some point. But eventually, he arrives at a place called Golgotha. That name means the place of the skull. It's about mid-morning at this point, And the patibulum is laid upon the ground, and Jesus is stretched out upon it. And a Roman soldier picks up a hammer and drives a long nail into each hand. And in the Bible, the Greek word for hand includes most of the forearm. So probably the nail was not driven into the palm. Uh, that flesh is, is not able to hold the weight of a body. So uh, it's more likely that the nail was driven into the wrist through the carpal bones or between the radius and the ulna. And there's a, a median nerve that runs through the arm here. The nail would have severed or crushed that nerve, sending a, a fiery bolt of pain up the arm. So Jesus is nailed to the patibulum. It's still on the ground, but then it's attached to the vertical beam, which is called the stipes. And Jesus' feet are nailed to that vertical beam. Either one nail through both feet or possibly two nails, one through each foot. And while the cross is still on the ground, one more thing happens. They nail the titulus to the top of the stipes. And the titulus was a sign. It announced Jesus' name and his crime. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then finally, the entire cross is lifted up and then dropped into place. Imagine what that felt like. Imagine the pain as the full weight of Jesus' body pulls down on those fresh wounds where the nails entered his hands and his feet. And imagine what it was like for Jesus to take a breath 
Imagine him just pushing up on the nails in his feet, trying to inhale oxygen. This whole experience would have been terrible pain, compounded by terror, compounded by utter humiliation. As the people on the ground looked up and they were still mocking him, they would have assumed that Jesus was hanging there helpless. But of course, he wasn't helpless. It's amazing to think about it. But at any time, Jesus could have put a stop to all this. He said it himself. He could have called down 12 legions of angels. We're talking about tens of thousands of angels. And they would have done whatever Jesus asked. But Jesus does not call on those angels. He stays on the cross. It was the most unfair and unjust execution in all of history. Jesus had done absolutely nothing wrong, but here he is being punished like the worst kind of criminal. So why did he allow that to happen? The answer is simple. Jesus did this for us. He did it for us. So let's shift gears here a little bit. We've talked about what they did to him. And now let's think a little about what Jesus did for us. And we're going to do that by looking at the words that Jesus spoke as he hung there on the cross. If you combine all four gospel accounts, we know of seven different things that Jesus said while he was being crucified. And I don't have the time to deal with all seven sayings in depth, but I do want to read each one because they give us a deeper understanding of the character of Jesus and the meaning of his sacrifice. First, in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, if you ever wanted proof that the love of Jesus is higher than ours and greater than our kind of love, uh, you can't do much better than this. Just think about what was going on as Jesus makes this statement. The soldiers were down at the foot of the cross gambling for his clothing. The religious leaders and the angry mob continued to mock him. And even one of the criminals being crucified next to him is hanging there insulting him. But as this abuse goes on and on and on, Jesus longs for his enemies to be forgiven. He's not looking for vengeance. He wants good things for them. Even despite their behavior, he continues to love them. That's the last thing they deserve. But this is what he said. So that's the first saying. With saying number two, Jesus speaks to the other criminal that's being crucified next to him. And that man was different. He knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And he says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus answers him and says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this man really was a criminal, and he didn't deserve to be forgiven. But Jesus wants good things for him, too. And when this criminal shows true repentance and faith, Jesus guarantees that he will leave this life and go directly into paradise. That's an example of God's amazing mercy and amazing grace. So let's look at saying number three. This time, Jesus speaks to the apostle John. He's concerned about his mother, Mary. He needs John to look after her. So in John's gospel, we read this. 
when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and that's John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Are you picking up on a theme here? Jesus is in the middle of unthinkable pain. And these first three sayings have nothing to do with his suffering. We can't comprehend that kind of selflessness. I mean, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about your own thumb, right? But Jesus is not like that. He's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about this criminal who needs a savior. He's thinking about all of these enemies who need forgiveness. It just blows your mind, doesn't it? At some point, though, Jesus does acknowledge his own suffering. In John 19, 28, he says, I am thirsty. As far as his physical suffering, that's his only complaint. With nails in his hands and his feet and with blood running everywhere, all he asks for is a drink of water. But for Jesus, the physical torment wasn't nearly as bad as the spiritual torment. Listen to these words from Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From a theological perspective, this cry is probably the most significant thing Jesus says on the cross. And this is not something we'd expect to hear, right? Why would Jesus be abandoned and forsaken? Why does he say this? Well, first, we should know that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. He's going back to Psalm 22. And let me read the first verse of that psalm. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? This psalm was written by King David at a point where he felt abandoned by God. Now, this does get confusing. Scripture tells us that Jesus was not only human. Jesus was also God. So how can Jesus, as God, feel abandoned by God? If you have trouble sorting that out, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. But I did run across an explanation that was helpful to me. A Bible commentator named Mark Moore says this, It's not that Jesus ceased to be God in this moment, but it is true that at some level, the Father turns his back on Jesus as he becomes the embodiment of sin. And right there, we're getting to the core of what Jesus has done for us. He went to the cross to carry our sin on his shoulders. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does it mean for Jesus to be sin for us? Well, it all goes back to the fact that each one of us has sinned against God. We've all broken God's rules. We've all chosen to rebel against God. And our sin comes with terrible consequences. Our sin brings down the wrath of God. Now, these days, it's not very popular to talk about God's wrath, but we need to talk about it because it's very real. If you flip over to Exodus chapter, two, chapter 32, 
you'll see how God responds to sin with a white-hot rage. God hates sin. Sin is a direct offense against his very nature. Sin is the cause of all suffering and heartbreak in this world. And because God is full of love and justice, he can't just look the other way. He can't let sin go unpunished. And in a way, that's good because we wouldn't want a God who just sits back and tolerates injustice. In another way, though, that's very bad because, like I said, we're all sinners. So you could think of God's wrath as a massively powerful weapon, some powerful gun or cannon or or a nuclear missile. But here's the problem. That weapon is pointed right at you. God's finger is on the trigger, on the button. So then, here comes Jesus. He steps into the path of this terrible weapon. He steps right in front of you, and he takes upon himself the white-hot rage and the righteous fury of God. Now, did Jesus deserve that? Absolutely not. But that's what's so amazing about the cross While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that brings us to the last two things Jesus says on the cross. In John 19, 30, Jesus speaks these three words. It is finished. So what's he talking about here? Does this mean that his life is over? Is that what he means? No, that's not it. In seven days, we will celebrate Easter, the resurrection, the greatest miracle in the history of the world. Jesus will come back from the dead. So his life is not finished. But then what is the meaning of these words? Well, it's about his mission. Jesus accomplished exactly what he came to earth to do. He stepped in front of us. He took the full penalty of our sin so that you and I could be forgiven and have eternal life. Jesus made a way for us to get back to God. And so finally, he's ready to die. Luke 23, 46, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Once again, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and he finds his voice in the Psalms. This time he quotes Psalm 31, verse 5. That verse says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, my Lord, my faithful God. Now Jesus is doing something profound here. Remember, just a few moments ago, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now he places himself into the hands of his heavenly Father. It's like he's saying, Father, even though I feel abandoned, I know you haven't truly abandoned me. I know this is all part of the plan, and I'm sticking with the plan. And thank God Jesus stuck with the plan. I hate the fact that he suffered the way that he did, but I'm so grateful for what he's done. He took our sin and our guilt. He took God's wrath on his shoulders. And even though we were all far, far from God, Jesus picks us up and he brings us near to God. And you know, that's what all of us really long for. We long to be in the presence of God. Money can't fill that longing. Success can't fill it. No form of pleasure or comfort can fill it. No person can fill that void, even the ones you love the most. Our longing is for God himself. 
And because of the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to live in God's presence for all of eternity. And when you put all of these things together, it's clear. This is the greatest sacrifice that anyone ever made for you. This is the greatest love that anyone has ever shown to you. However, I do need to share something difficult here. The good news is very real, but there's also bad news. The good news is this. The sacrifice of Jesus applies to every person who has ever lived throughout history. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus died for you. He offers this gift of forgiveness and salvation and the presence of God to everyone, everywhere. But here's the bad news. Not everyone has received that gift. Not everyone has chosen to put their faith in Jesus, to repent and turn away from sin, to confess him as Lord and Savior, to to be baptized into Christ, to live a new life where Jesus is your Lord and your King, and you stop trying to keep that crown for yourself. Now, I don't mean that followers of Christ have to be perfect. We all need God's grace, and that never changes as long as we're in this world. But let's be very clear. Unless you receive the gift that Christ offers, you have not received the benefits that God wants for you. Here's one way to think about it. Imagine that it's your birthday and somebody shows up at your front door and they stand there and they have a present for you and they hold out that present and they want you to take it. Now, what do you need to do for that present to be yours? You just need to receive it, right? You don't need to pay for it. You don't need to put on some kind of performance or prove that you're worthy. You just take it. But imagine this. What if, instead of taking the present, you just slam the door and walk away? Well, at that point, you've rejected the gift, haven't you? It could have been yours, but you chose not to receive it. And it's the same with God. You are loved by God. So, so loved but he won't force you to receive the gift. If you choose to reject him, he will honor your decision and you'll spend eternity apart from him. Hell is a real place and real people go there. But Jesus died on a blood-soaked cross so that no one has to go there. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And now we need to figure out how to respond to this story. And remember, this is not some distant, ancient headline. This is good news for all of us. It's personal. And today, we need to respond to this good news. So before I close, let me give you three options very quickly. How should we respond to what Jesus has done for us? First of all, if you haven't yet done this, you need to receive the gift. Just like that criminal on the cross, you can turn to Jesus and begin a life-changing relationship with him. Here at Plum Creek, we'd love to come alongside you as you make that decision. And even in this time of social distancing, when we can't get together the way we'd like to, we can still have a conversation. Just go to plumcreek.org slash connect. You'll find a way to contact us. But if you know you need to make that decision, I encourage you to reach out today. But what if you already have that relationship with Jesus? How can you respond to what he's done on the cross? Well, here's a second option. You can respond by sharing the gift. You can point people to Jesus. You can help others find hope in him. One basic way to do that is just to show the love of Christ in a practical way. 
And so many of you are finding ways to do that right now. Uh, You've been writing cards for people in the hospital. You've been making masks. You've been providing food, all kinds of things. Another great way to share the gift is to invite people to join us on Sundays for this online service. And you know, next week is Easter, and this is always one of the biggest inviting opportunities of the entire year, and this year is no different. The truth is, it's never been easier to invite someone to hear the good news about Jesus. It's as simple as sharing the link and saying, hey, come join us. Followers of Christ, share this gift because we want others to find what we have found. Earlier, I mentioned Steve and Ruthie, our missionary partners, and I want to share one more message from them. They've been serving in a country where there are almost no Christians. Followers of Jesus are in a microscopic minority there. In his email to us, Steve wrote these words. He said, Although evangelism is illegal in this country, We go out every week and share the news of Jesus and offer to pray for people in his name. We thank God for this open door in a very closed place. And God has also led us to start an outreach over social media, which is reaching thousands of others too. I'm inspired by these guys, and I hope you are too. But I also want to mention one last way that we can respond to what Jesus has done on the cross. It's pretty simple, really. We can respond by showing Jesus the love and the gratitude that he so much deserves. When somebody loves you like that, it only makes sense to love that person in return. And when somebody makes that kind of sacrifice for you, it only makes sense to say thank you, to live in a state of continual gratitude. At Plum Creek, we take time every single week to observe the Lord's Supper or communion. And that's what this is about. It's about expressing our love and saying thank you. It's a practice that Jesus himself established. The Apostle Paul wrote a great summary of this practice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So like the earliest Christians, we observe this practice every Sunday. And we've continued to do that, even though we can't be in the same room right now. So in your home or wherever you are, I encourage all believers to take a cup of grape juice, or the closest thing you have to that, and a piece of unleavened bread, or the closest thing you have to that. And let's remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's be thankful. Let's express our love to him. I'm going to pray, and then we'll give you a few moments to eat the bread and drink from the cup and just remember the cross. Remember that what Jesus did, he did for you. Let's pray. Father, just what we've looked at in your word for these past few minutes, all we can do is is say thank you and return your love with our love. Lord, we are so grateful that even though we were sinners, even though we did not deserve it, 
you still chose to love us. You were looking for a way for us to be forgiven. And I thank you for the cross, which opened that way. So Lord, as we take this time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and eat this bread and drink this cup, I pray that you'll work in our hearts, you'll speak to our hearts, and that we'll respond with our love and our gratitude. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.